By temporarily disrupting the brain, a new order forms, and that order may have incredible value at either the level of mental health and psychology or at the level of creativity. This and other possibilities for rewiring the brain is presented by Michael Pollan in his discussion with Tim Ferriss on The Tim Ferriss Show. Keep listening for more on how to create new brain connections, alternative methods to treating depression and addiction, and changing the perception of how you see yourself in the world. It's Tracy. Thanks for being here. And welcome to another replay of the day on this episode of Invisible You, a podcast for women over 40 living courageously. I've been stalking Michael Pollan since the documentary Food Inc. came out back in 2008, a film exposing the underbelly of what's called corporate farming or agribusiness. And it laid out the somewhat disturbing truth about how our food is really produced. It was the first time I heard the term GMO or genetically modified organism. Pretty well known today, but not so much back then. And it's something I'd go on to learn a lot more about over the years that completely changed the way I ate. So when I heard he was delving into the realm of psychedelics, already a subject of interest, you bet your ass I was all in. All right, a quick and dirty on psychedelics, just in case you're not familiar. They're hallucinogens, or what you might call mind-altering drugs, and they include things like medicinal mushrooms, or another term might be psilocybin, MDMA, or its street name, ecstasy, ayahuasca, which is a bitter drink made by shamans or medicine men from South America, LSD, also known as acid, and the list goes on. Obviously illegal, but making a comeback in a therapeutic setting where they're used in treating vets with PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addiction, you get the idea. Now, you probably recognize a few of the substances, especially if your teenage years looked anything like mine, and you had a few mm, hypothetical experiences of your own at, oh, I don't know, a concert, party, or class. And I personally remember a friend taking something while watching the movie Practical Magic. You know, the one with Nicole Kidman and uh, Sandra Bullock. And thinking, this This is the most profound piece of film ever made. Now I've, I mean, she's since watched it sober and while mildly entertaining, her view on it has changed slightly since then. But now that I'm wearing my big girl panties and I look at these substances less for their entertainment value and more for their mind-body benefit, I appreciate the endless possibilities for both mental and emotional healing. It's honestly crazy to think you can get the effects of six months of therapy in one profound session. Just think of the countless hours you'd save from going down memory lane and rehashing all your old shit for hundreds of dollars that could be used for more important things like, I don't know, hers and hers plastic surgery. Okay, I'm just kidding. It's an inside joke from last week, just in case you missed it. And for anyone struggling with their meditation game, psychedelics can be a great jumpstart in taking things to the next level. Honestly, the sky's the limit with these things. 
And what about the potential they have for supporting people with depression at a time when women especially being put on antidepressants is in an all-time high? That's bananas. I've never had clinical depression, so I can't speak to that specifically. But I mean, I've definitely gone through periods of time where the lens I saw the world through, it wasn't so rose-colored. And what made it worse? People actually telling me, you know, I really think you're depressed. It's like when people come up to you and say, you look tired. And you think, okay, what do I say to that? Thanks? Hearing it just makes it so much harder to shake because I went from feeling depressed to being a depressed person. I identified with depression. And if you've followed me over the last few weeks, you might correctly assume that I was doing all the things. I had made self-care a full-time job just to stay above water. And while sometimes it does have to run its course, you can also get stuck in the muck for way too long. And that's when I did a little digging and I stumbled upon microdosing. Microdosing is taking mushrooms, for instance, and using them as you would a supplement but in much smaller amounts and without that trip effect. It's a very different experience to that of higher doses used in something like psychotherapy. And the beauty of it, you can still go ahead with your day as you normally would, uninterrupted, but just with a a greater sense of overall well-being and ease. Now, I have this friend, we'll call her Stacy. And coincidentally, she and I are the same age with the exact same challenges. I know, weird, right? Well, Stacy did some research and found out that it was legal to purchase mushroom spores online for quote unquote research purposes. So she bought some spores, a pre-assembled mushroom grow kit, and went to work growing her own mushrooms at home. That part being not so legal. But once full grown, She dried them, weighed them, and used them a few times a week. Now, they definitely helped improve her mood on the day she took them, or so I heard. I mean, obviously, I can't really know. But those few good days easily, maybe not so easily, became a few more until things got back into at least a healthy balance again. I'm not saying it's the end all be all, but it's a tool in her toolbox. She later decided to take a full, we'll call it therapeutic dose of mushrooms because, I mean, why not? And she set aside an entire day to be at home, made sure the house was clean, there was no interruptions, plenty of food prepared, and she set an intention for what she wanted to get out of it. The intention, maybe a little ambitious, just to find her next steps or where to start on her new path. That was it. She made the tea with the mushrooms, basically just steeping it in hot water, added a little honey so she wouldn't get sick because they do have that tendency, put on some music, and away she went. Now, disclaimer, she didn't know what the hell she was doing, and she did have to Google best practices. Maybe not the ideal situation, but sometimes you just take the leap. To make a long story short, the utter and profound, not so profound, message was, Are you ready for it? Stop being so selfish, help others, and have gratitude for life. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Common sense. But as we've said before, common sense, it's not so common. 
And there was no point in doing this if she wasn't going to integrate what she learned and take action on it. Otherwise, she'd probably just keep chasing answers and feeling like she just wasn't getting anywhere. So after sitting in her annoyance for a time at this new insight, she did just that and actually improved her life along the way. She didn't want to disregard something just because it seemed easy or obvious. By the way, it wasn't either. Again, I'm not saying psychedelics are the end-all be-all, and there's definitely some risk involved, so you should always do your research, which I did for at least two to three years before entering into anything. Not that you have to go quite that long. But everyone's different. No two people have the exact same results. So, of course, use common sense. Look at all your options. And by the way, there are other means of getting into altered states with things like breath work, meditation, yoga, and others that can offer less potential side effects without the risks. So just know you have options and they're far from limited. One of the most interesting clues uh, has come from the um, work done, especially at Imperial College in London, Uh, But also it's now happening at other places in Switzerland and uh, at Hopkins to to image the brains of people on psychedelics Um, by image. I mean, use fMRIs or some of these other modalities um, to see what's going on in the brain when people are under the influence. And the biggest takeaway from that work, uh, and this is in papers that uh, Robin Carhart Harris at Imperial College has published is that contrary to what the the neuroscientist expected, which was that the brain would kind of light up with extra activity uh, because there was such, you know, visual and auditory fireworks going on during the experience, they found that um, activity in the brain was actually depressed by psychedelics, particularly in one network. This was a network I had never heard of before until I started doing this work, and it was only discovered about 15 years ago by a neuroscientist, American neuroscientist at Washington University named Marcus Rakel, and that is the default mode network. Um, called that because this is kind of where the brain goes when it's not busy. Um, it's where you go to ruminate, worry, uh, daydream, um, and it was discovered when they were administering fMRIs uh, to people and needed to get a baseline. And they would tell people, don't do anything, just lie there and don't, you know, no tasks. And they would see that, oh, interesting, the brain's actually quite active when you're doing nothing. And this part of it is very active. This part is a linked set of structures that include the prefrontal cortex, the uh, posterior cingulate cortex. These are both in the cortex, which is the evolutionarily most recent part of layer of the brain on the outside. Um, and, and then those link down into deeper, older structures like, uh, that are involved with memory, uh, and, um, emotions. Um, and it appears to be a very important hub. Uh, the brain is a hierarchical system and the default mode network kind of is in charge, uh, is a regulator of the whole. And um, it's involved in a range of metacognitive uh, functions uh, that include self-reflection and rumination, time travel, that's thinking about the past and thinking about the future, Um, theory of mind, uh, that's the ability to imagine mental states or attribute mental states to others, Um, 
and uh, the what is called the autobiographical memory, uh, the autobiographical self, forgive me. Um, this is kind of where we integrate what's happening to us with the narrative we have of who we are, uh, which is a mix of, you know, everything that's happened to us before or the parts of our biography we think about and our objectives for the future. And to have an, a, a sense of self that's consistent over time, something we prize, even though it's probably completely illusory, um, that work of constructing that happens in uh, part of, parts of the default mode network. So you could say it's kind of the seat of the self or the ego to the extent that we can say that. And, um, and how interesting that this particular network, important as it is, gets, goes offline or at least has activity diminished. And, and this is really interesting, the more precipitous the drop in activity in the default mode network, the more likely someone is liable to report that they experienced ego dissolution. That, that experience that's common on a high dose of psychedelics that can either be terrifying or absolutely ecstatic of having your sense of self disappear or melt or dissolve, and which is then followed by this merging with um, you know, the larger world, the nature, the universe, other people. And um, uh, so that seems to be involved with the you know, diminution of activity in this, in this particular network. So that gives us a window into the self uh, and into spiritual experience, because that experience of ego dissolution feels to people like a mystical experience, feels like. Uh, it's very spiritual, this sense of, you know, transcending this bag of bones we are and, and, and actually connect with, with larger entities. And it's that experience, too, that um, may make it easier to uh, die in that ego dissolution is a kind of rehearsal for death, uh, giving up yourself and, and then seeing, and this was for me the most incredible thing, was that uh, your ego could die, but you still perceive You're, there's still a consciousness, another consciousness. And, um, and I think that that's enormously comforting to, uh, to people. So anyway, from a neuroscientific point of view, this is a really interesting insight and psychedelics gave it to us. There are two other things I want to say about it. That's, that's also even more interesting. One is that when they, when other researchers at Yale started scanning the brains of really experienced meditators, you know, people with 10,000 hours who really know how to, how to meditate, um, their scans looked very similar to the people on psychedelics, on psilocybin. Uh, that they too, that meditation is another way to quiet the default mode network. And my guess is there's several others too. My guess is it's quieted when you're, um, uh, you know, when you fast, uh, uh, you know, when you're on a vision quest, when you go into sensory deprivation, um, my guess is that all these, uh, powerful experiences may well involve alternate modalities for shutting off or quieting the default mode network. So that's a big takeaway. Uh, and I think, um, will be significant in the future. The other point I want to make about that in the neuroscience is that, uh, also coming out of Robin Carhart Harris's lab um, was they they mapped uh, connections. They call it the connectome in the in the human brain, and that changes during the experience. 
when you turn off the default mode network, which which uh, Robin refers to as the orchestra conductor or corporate executive or capital city of the brain, he has all these wonderful metaphors. When that goes offline, other parts of the brain and other networks that don't ordinarily talk to each other strike up conversations. And if you look at this image, which is reprinted in my book, actually, they did it in color in the middle of the book. I didn't even know they could do this uh, toward the end of the book. Um, you see that what had been this this uh, set of principal, you know, main thoroughfares connecting different networks in the brain, suddenly you get lots of little roads, uh, new connections, um, myriad new connections get established. Basically, because probably because the default mode network is not requiring everybody come through that hub. And uh, so you have, for example, perhaps emotion centers talking directly to your visual cortex, which lo and behold could allow you to see things you're, you're feeling, um, you know, could, could result in hallucinations. Those new connections may, and, and now I'm being speculative, may manifest as new perspectives, new ideas, new memes, new metaphors. Um, but the point is that by temporarily you know, disrupting the order of the brain, a new order forms. And that order may have incredible value at, at either the level of mental health and psychology or at the level of creativity. Um, and that's what we need to get into right now. What, what happens with those new connections? Do they endure or not? Uh, and are there ways to uh, help them endure longer? The visualization that you mentioned uh, is so pr- – the difference is so pronounced. And uh, it, it's really something to behold. So I, I certainly encourage people to just take a moment to soak the image in when they have a chance to look at it. And it's not hard to find online, too. It's not hard to find online. And what what I wanted to – I mean, certainly – these compounds are not panaceas. They don't fix everything. Uh, and, and they do have risks. I mean, I think we should talk about that. Oh, we're absolutely going to talk about the risks. Uh, but be, before we get to that, I wanted to go back to the studies that have been done and to ask you what studies have most perhaps shocked you or surprised you or have stuck with you. And just uh, for purposes of, uh, I suppose, sharing on my side – the studies are really wide ranging. I mean, many studies had been performed in the, uh, I suppose, well, I'm not sure when the early fifties and early sixties, mm-hmm. but, uh, the, even looking at the more recent studies related to smoking cessation or different forms of addiction, certainly end of life anxiety, uh, treatment resistant depression, there are a number of characteristics that have been really surprising to me when looking at the results, but I'd be curious to hear if there are any uh, related to the magnitude, persistence, or anything of effects that have been particularly memorable for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the first one that was really memorable to me was the first one I read, and this was a 2006 study by uh, done at Johns Hopkins in the lab of Roland Griffiths, who I believe you know pretty well. I do. And um, this was a kind of wild study because it didn't purport to have any practical utility at all. It wasn't. Uh, it had nothing to do with health or healing people. It was really an attempt to see if psilocybin could be used to occasion. That's the verb they used to occasion uh, profound mystical experiences in people. 
And the title of this paper is kind of hilarious. You know, uh, high dose of psilocybin can occasion profound ex- uh, mystical experiences in people um, that are have you know lasting value or something like that. Um, I don't have it quite right, but it's uh, it it just stood out as wait, scientists do this? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, and what's a mystical experience doing in a scientific experiment? Um, but it, in a way, this was the predicate of all the research to come uh, in this in this uh, renaissance that's going on, because um, they had found first they had proven that you could safely administer these drugs in this environment, and that uh, with a very high percentage you could induce this kind of experience that people would report as one of the three, uh, two or three most meaningful experiences in their lives, comparable to the birth of a child or the death of a parent. Um, The fact that you could induce such an experience in a laboratory reliably with a mushroom, uh, well, that kind of blew my mind. And and I talked, I interviewed many people in that trial, and uh, and it was really interesting to hear their experience. These are are so-called healthy normals, um, so they didn't have a pathology, they weren't dying, um, and they were kind of spiritually inclined. That uh, was definitely, um, you know, it seemed to me a common denominator of the people, the volunteers. Um, but that that this drug would create an experience that was indistinguishable from mystical experiences as we have them in the literature, as they were recorded by the great mystics of uh, of all time, uh, and, and, and all the writers who've talked about mystical experience from, you know, Whitman to Emerson to, to Tennyson. Um, so I thought that was a really cool study. Um, and the testimony of the people in it was very interesting. It was also interesting that, um, in a follow-up, they crunched that data very carefully and they discovered that, um, a significant, statistically significant percentage of people uh, who had had these psilocybin experiences had actually had changes in their personality that were enduring. Um, psychologists divide personality up into five traits, and I'm not going to remember them all, but it's things like conscientiousness, neuroticism, extroversion, openness, and I forget the fifth. Um, but um, openness, uh, which correlates with uh, you know tolerance for other people's points of view, ability to to take in lots of um, surprising information, uh, creativity, um, actually was increased uh, statistically significant increase in openness, um, and that's it's very rare that personality changes in adults at all, and the idea that a mushroom could induce such a change was. Really striking. Now, this has yet to be reproduced, this particular result, but um, uh, whether there are lasting changes in personality of people who take psychedelics, I think, is a really rich topic to explore and, and, and definitely deserves more work. The, the smoking study you alluded to, I thought, was also fascinating. Um, you know, here you have one of the hardest of all habits to kick. Um, and uh, of people who went through this process, which involved two or three psychedelic trips on psilocybin and some cognitive behavioral therapy uh, in between, um, 80% were confirmed abstinent, were not smoking at the six-month mark. And that number fell to, uh, I think it was 67% after a year. Um, This is a small pilot study, open label, which means everybody knew they were getting psilocybin, nobody got a placebo. Um, but that's that's 
pretty impressive. And in fact, 67% success after a year is better than anything else that's out there. So this study needs to be uh, reproduced. And, yeah. and, and it's, it not, is, not, it's not, happening. And um, uh, so it's a big deal. But was, what was also noteworthy to me about that particular study was talking to the people in the study. And, and I would ask them, you know, so why did this make it any easier to quit smoking? I mean, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with smoking. And they would describe an experience that um, put their life and their behavior in such a radically new context. And they would say that, you know, they would say these incredibly banal things. They'd say, like, I realized my breath is precious and that there is no life without breath. And it's really stupid to to damage your breath. And I'm like, duh. Uh, (laughs) uh, Didn't you know that already? Interested in learning more on today's topic? Check out the full interview between Michael Pollan and Tim Ferriss on The Tim Ferriss Show, episode number 313, Exploring the Science of Psychedelics. Links to that and both their social media are in the show notes below, along with where to order a mushroom kit of your own. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with someone you think might benefit. And until next time, thanks for listening.